Welcome to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love hosted by Richard Osler. Um, just as a reminder, we encourage everybody to sign up for our newsletter. It's You can go there and at the link at listenlearnandlove.org and sign up for our newsletter. We're trying to have that come out every couple of weeks. We encourage our listeners also to rate this podcast. Um, we're getting more ratings. We appreciate that at the platform you're listening. Uh, my guest on today's podcast is my friend Amber Richardson. Welcome to the podcast, Amber. Thank you. Amber is someone who um, I became aware of through, let's remember her name, ja- J- Jacqueline. Jacqueline. Jacqueline Sokol. And so she messaged me, and sometimes I get messages from somebody who says, you ought to have someone else on the podcast like Amber, and and that's okay. I wanted, you know, I, I want different people, not different in a in a negative way. I just want variety of voices to be able to use this platform to help us become the body of Christ that um, I think God wants us to be is in our church. And Amber will have some interesting insights, just a little bit of an overview um, so you understand who we're talking to and the content of this podcast. And I write these notes down and just hope that I can get it accurate. Um, Amber did offer a wonderful prayer before we started, and we pray that a good spirit is here. I'm meeting with someone in her late um, 20s. I'm meeting with someone who's... um, a victim of a sexual assault as a young girl. We'll talk about that and how that's really changed her world and have been a very difficult thing to deal with. And And um, I just admire her for being so brave to share a little bit about that and so we can all do better. And um, she, um, Amber is straight. She doesn't identify as LGBTQ. I know it's kind of weird to say that on a podcast, but most of my guests are. LGBTQ. So when we have someone that's straight, we like to just make sure you know that. Amber um, grew up in Napa, Idaho, is the oldest of four, graduated in 2013 with a degree at BYU in theater. Amber also, in addition to talking about her, her journey as a survivor of sexual assault, some of you are teaching me to not use the word victim, but actually talk about that as a survivor of a sexual assault. Amber will talk about wonderful queens in our scriptures. I love the word you used in your message to me. You didn't say women, you said queens. And I really like that. And you may tell us why you use that word instead of women. Both are appropriate. Um, So that's just a little bit of the podcast. Amber's, and we'll just talk about her journey with the church um, and some of the things that have really worked for her and some of the things that are a little bit difficult. And I think that helps us know how to all do better. Anything that you'd like to correct in that introduction, Amber. You did a wonderful job. Is that okay? I think I'd just like to say thank you for having me and that I've been very edified by the stories that you've shared so far that I've been able to listen to. And I hope that I'll be able to bring something that will contribute. So talk about, um, let's start with your podcast. Um, Tell us the name of the podcast and when you started and why you started to do this podcast. I host a podcast called On Sovereign Wings. It's specifically geared towards uh, women who have survived sexual assault or sexual abuse. I started the podcast last September, and the reason that it came into being is because I have done a fair amount of work uh, amplifying the stories of women in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And after one particular video in a project I did, um, 
accidentally went viral, we had a number of women reach out to us who wanted to be interviewed. And those um, women, half of them, had a story that they wanted to share about sexual assault within a spiritual context. Right after that, the Me Too hashtag went viral, and I started to kind of put the pieces together and realized uh, what a prolific problem this is inside and outside the church. At the time, I was aware of a few um, experiences I'd had with sexual assault while at college um, that I would identify as being more minor. And so I thought, you know, I'm in a position where I'd be a good person to facilitate this conversation because I can empathize with the experience of sexual assault, but it's not going to bowl me over. So I, I plugged some money into the project and I started conceptualizing it and started doing interviews. And about six months into developing on Sovereign Wings, I had a repressed memory of my own childhood rape that resurfaced. Um, and I quickly discovered that actually I was going to be bowled over by every single interview. Uh, and so I continued to work on On Sovereign Wings, but very slowly and deliberately. And anytime I've successfully produced an episode, I feel quite a lot of pride <laughs> in myself. And I'm so grateful to be able to sit down with other survivors and learn from their wisdom and their journeys of healing. So it's really been a blessing in my life that I had no idea I needed. Thanks for just sharing that. It takes courage, just what you just shared, um, and to talk about your own sexual assault and, and that repressed memory that came through as you were hearing other stories. Um, just really tenderhearted for anybody that comes on the podcast and talks real vulnerable about their own story. It takes a lot of courage. I will never probably understand how much courage it takes to do what you're doing, and I mean that really sincerely. And uh, this phrase you used, um, Amber, bold over. Explain more about that, just hearing other people's stories, why that then can be triggering for you. I, I think that idiom refers to bowling, right? <laughs> so that's a pretty good image for how I'm affected by hearing these stories. If I'm a pin um, on a bowling lane, I just get smacked, smacked over pretty much every time. Uh, so... Because it reminds you, um, and it's sort of re-traumatizing as you hear someone else's story. Is that correct? In some ways, yeah. Uh, I'm getting a lot better at, at managing it, and I'm very slow and deliberate. The, the most difficult part is oftentimes editing the stories. I edit them myself. Um, when This isn't always the case, but oftentimes when victims are talking about their trauma, they'll kind of get sucked into a swirl and they'll start speaking very cyclically and they'll repeat themselves a lot, which is totally fine. Uh, but for a listener, it can become very confusing and disorienting. So I, I edit the episodes pretty closely to make sure that um, they are going to be digestible for a listener and also to make sure that there isn't anything that's been said that a survivor might not want to have public because it's hard to keep all of that in your head while you're sharing your story. And I want to make sure that the survivor feels very safe and feels like the end product is a reflection of what they'd like to share. 
So hearing the story is usually okay for me, but when I sit down and have to listen to it, you know, 15 times as you edit, as I edit, that's where the bowling pin gets um, smacked against the back wall. Uh, and honestly, I think it's been very therapeutic for me because I, that process is a process that's inside my control. I get to pre- to open my laptop and press play or press pause. And as things are coming up and I'm comparing my own experiences against someone else's, I often will get a lot of clarity about uh, emotions that I've been storing or beliefs that I've been holding on to. And I think in my case, because my memory was repressed and because I was uh, assaulted as a very young child, this process has been almost necessary in some ways. Um, it's, it's very hard for me to access my childhood self. I, I believe I was four years old when I was raped. And so um, having the opportunity to sit down and listen to a story 15 times, um, while it can be very difficult in some ways, it also gives me the time I need to process what it is about this story specifically that is um, ringing true for me. said something really interesting there. It's hard for me to access my four-year-old self. I think what you're saying is you're healing you correct me if I'm wrong. Obviously, you want to heal. You're a survivor and you need to heal. But it's probably, I don't know how you go back to your four-year-old self and heal. But is it helpful to hear other stories? Does that helping you heal? Um, I, yeah, because my natural instinct is to want to do everything I could do in your life. If you know, if I were your friend or your even your YSA bishop or a clinical person, I'm not clinically trained to help you to heal. So is this process helping you heal, even though starting the process re- opened up this repressed big experience? I, I believe that it is helping me to heal. Um, and there are a lot of dimensions to it. Like we were talking about, it's an exercise um, that's teaching me sovereignty uh, because the project is within my control. And I do get to make decisions about how I'm going to engage and when. Um, And I think it's important for me to be in the driver's seat with my trauma. And this podcast gives me that opportunity. But it also has created an amazing sisterhood. Um, Right after my repressed memory came back, I started to feel very alienated and afraid at church. um, Because I wasn't in a culture where people understood what I was experiencing. And that made me feel like I had a target on my back. Um, And so the women that I've been interviewing within On Sovereign Wings... Um, they're my people and they know what I'm, they understand what I'm going through. And even though, you know, they might not live within my ward boundaries per se, a lot of them are just a phone call away. Um, and that, that kind of sisterhood isn't something that you can always just, uh, move your records into. And so I really value that aspect of the work as well. Talk about this word sovereignty. It's a word that I think of, a, you know, I've never thought about that word, Amber. <laughs> I can't spell it. You helped me spell it before we went. As my family knows, I can't spell. Um, but it's a word I've associated with kind of countries being separate from a different country that were once under their rule. And you're using this in a really thoughtful way. Just spend some time and share your thoughts on the word sovereignty. I first encountered the word sovereignty in a political context as well um, regarding uh, indigenous tribes in in the United States of America and um, 
what they're oftentimes being denied, what they were being denied historically and what they're still being denied today in many cases. Uh, but it kind of came to me um, as I was conceiving this podcast, the word kept coming back over and over again through this almost spiritual channel. Um, and I, I looked it up in the dictionary and, and realized that um, it has other connotations as well. Uh, a ruler or a monarch might also be called a sovereign. Uh, sovereignty deals with, um, in the context that I'm using it, uh, a human being's innate um, power or agency um, over their over their life. I believe that in an eternal aspect, we were all designed as sovereigns, that our ability to choose and to create is central to who we are as divine beings. Um, and so in my case, as a young child, my sovereignty was um, disregarded. Um, it was, it was, it wasn't taken from me per se, but um, in some ways it was, right? And so within my healing process, I am trying to reteach myself um, who I was created to be. And I really love the word sovereignty because it does have that um, regal or royal connotation. And as you talked about, I am doing a lot of work with um, the archetype of the queen. Yeah, and so I think what I've felt that my heavenly parents are trying to teach me through this process is to really step into who I was designed to be. And being sovereign isn't something I've um, linked to my experience as a member of the church or as a spiritual being even. I've realized that there are so many things that I have done because I somebody on the outside told me I should do them. And so sovereignty, accepting my own sovereignty means accepting my own authority and being authentic about where I am and what questions I have and what I'm struggling with, but also what I know and what I feel passionately about and what the spirit has confirmed to me personally. And I'm learning that my own landscape is very unique and it's been very interesting to have God affirm that. It's very helpful. Talk about um, the Me Too, Too movement. Just, I should know this. <laughs> um, I just know that a series of things happened and that hashtag came about and then a lot more people shared their stories. Can you just kind of walk us through the history in our country? I can't remember if it was one event that kind of triggered everything or if it was multiple events. So there's one woman in particular, I don't have her name at the top of my tongue, um, but she's been speaking to sexual assault survivors for a long time. Uh, and one of the approaches that she uses in her speaking and therapy is um, this concept of, of Me Too, um, that, that claiming... Um, this this shared space that's stepping up and saying something like this happened to me too can be really liberating for yourself and for others because as you say me too you give um, other survivors permission to say the same um her name will probably come back to me after we finish this recording <laughs> that's always how that works exactly uh, yeah and so i don't know precisely how um the hashtag went viral i guess it's the magic of the internet but all of a sudden, in October of 2017, I think it was, 
um, various celebrities and people of influence started posting accounts of their own experiences with sexual assault online using the hashtag MeToo. Um, and suddenly, I guess, within our consciousness, there were enough uh, survivors who were ready to use the hashtag that it just kind of was like wildfire. Um, and, you know, it even got down to little communities here in Utah. Um, and I, I think that, I, like, as I mentioned with my own experience with that video series, I think I knew deep down that this was a, a very prolific and rampant issue. Um, and within uh, female circles, at least, there were always whispers, you know, especially if you're some, if you're a safe person. Um, in my case, I, I'm usually fairly safe when I'm in a good mood, <laughs> not triggered. And so I had heard a lot of stories from friends, but always in whispers. And so seeing it materialize um, on Facebook or on Twitter um, was very sobering, but also really exhilarating, you know, like proof almost that um, this was as big of a beast as I thought it was. Um, so that's the Me Too movement according to me. <laughs> that's great, Amber. And were there specific stories in there that um, were there Me Too um, mentors? I don't know if that's the right word or just stories that you heard that were healing for you or helpful for you or gave you more confidence to talk or desire to talk about your own situation. You know, I, I think that um, actually what I saw within the Me Too movement was um, – in large part, what inspired me to conceptualize on Sovereign Wings the way that I did. Oftentimes, uh, when people would post um, using the hashtag MeToo, um, they would be able to get out something about what they experienced. Um, and generally, the language is, was very vague. Um, and that, that makes sense. There's a lot of safety in that, especially because sexual assault and sexual violence is uh, much more often something that happens within a pre-established relationship, a boyfriend or a family member or a friend. Um, and so telling your story becomes very complicated, you know, if you still maintain a connection to um, your perpetrator. So my point is that a lot of these stories that I was reading were very brief and typically dealt with the specifics of what happened or how frequently it happened. Um, and getting that out is the first step. But I realized that I, you know, after seeing how um, prolific this experience was, I kind of came to this place where I thought, well, how do, how do we fix it? Like, how do we get better? Um, and so within my podcast, almost in every episode, the woman I interview will tell me their story first. And then the, the questions that I ask typically surround, you know, what has, has worked for you? what are the experiences and healing that have been the hardest? Generally that will reveal where they fought the, the biggest fight. I love those stories. And, and what things, what wisdom do you feel like you'd like to share with other survivors? Um, and so specifically looking for how the healing process um, can manifest in individuals has started to show me some of the, the commonalities and helped me visualize a trajectory that I'm now stumbling my way through. Um, it's still not entirely clear, but at least I'm convinced at this point that it's possible. I like the word trajectory. To me, I'm thinking that's a positive word to give you hope for the future. Um, 
yeah, now I want to listen to all the episodes in your podcast, Amber, and because I'm intrigued with what what people are doing to um, heal and what wisdom that comes into their lives as they're healing and moving forward. Do you want to share any of that, either in your own experience or those in your guests? Any just you know, if there's other victims out there or survivors. Um, that may be helpful to them or people like me that are trying to help them? Well, I've, I've definitely learned that healing from trauma is a very different experience than um, some of what I've encountered previously um, within like a, a, a psychologist's office. Um, you don't treat trauma the same way that you treat anxiety or depression. Uh, when, when a person is traumatized, um, there's a, a part of their brain that kind of stores and hoards that information. Um, the part of your brain that wants to protect you in the future. And so that's why, uh, you know, once trauma is, uh, has resurfaced or maybe it was there all along, that's why, uh, being triggered is, is a possibility. It's your subconscious mind your subconscious mind is always on the alert, right? Because it wants to keep you safe. So it's always watching for any indication that you might have a repeated experience, like a repeated near brush with death as it perceives death. And so it'll be watching through these signs. And sometimes triggers can be, I mean, they almost feel comical. Like for me, um, gray hair is something that sends my brain like, whoa, you know, crazy. Um, or, or like I went to Hawaii a few weeks ago and since my memory came back, I haven't been around the beach or the swimming pool. And so seeing men without their shirts on, uh, made my brain tell me like, you are unsafe. <laughs> um, or sometimes it can be smells or it can be a, a certain kind of touch or maybe the song that was playing when you were assaulted. It can be a certain part of town or a car, um, you know. Or, or a, a, a word or a phrase, something that was said to you. Um, and so for a, for a lot of people, um, if this goes a long time without being treated, it just becomes part of your life and you start learning to adapt and maybe to avoid places or songs or um, situations that are going to elicit that fear from you. Um, and so my own process has been starting to bring all of that into consciousness, really paying attention to what things send me over the edge. Like, when do I shut down? When do I become very afraid? What is that thing? And then I have to follow it further and ask, okay, why is it that a man without a shirt on or a man with gray hair, why is it that those things like turn me into this frenzied animal? And then I have to get down deep, deep, deep into um, whatever it was I experienced that caused the the hurt or the pain. And I have to get into that. And I kind of just have to love myself in that place. And as I sit there and let myself feel everything that um, what I experienced uh, deserves, um, over time I've found that those triggers start to ease up and lessen. Um, and so that's where I am currently. I'm just trying to really pay attention and listen and observe and then when I find something, I try to go into it and I try to really love myself in that place. Wow. It's really powerful, Amber. And I love where, I mean, there's a side of my reaction. There's a side of my brain that said, don't go there because you just want to make this all go away. But there's a, I think the more I understand clinical 
um, expertise, what you're doing is the road to long-term healing, even though it may be more difficult at times than just not remembering. And I love what you said, when you go there, love yourself. And, um, and then I love you talking about how the triggers are reduced as you're able to sort of, I think it takes incredible courage to do what you're doing because you're walking back into the, this really difficult world that you're an, an innocent, completely innocent in, but you probably makes me wish I'd had a different career and could sit here as a clinically trained social worker. And, but I, my gut is what you're doing is great and takes great courage and is the road to healing. And then I love this quote I read in a lot of podcasts. Um, I'll read it earlier today than some podcasts, but this is from Henry Norwin, the wounded healer, a minister's service. And I think of that as a man and a woman will not be perceived as authentic unless it comes from a heart wounded by the suffering about which he or she speaks. The great illusion of leadership is to think others can be led out of the desert by someone who's never been there. And so we're all the wounded healers. Christ was the ultimate wounded healer, but you have been incredibly wounded. Um, And you know a desert that I don't know, and it's a brutal desert with nothing growing. But the work you're doing is you're leading people out of this desert because you know the desert, Amber. And maybe that's one of the greatest gifts you can give back to your fellow sisters, the sisterhood that you talked about. But um, I really admire you for what you're doing and taking this this unfathomably wrong experience and using and trying to heal from it by hitting it head on and now being able to help others by giving them voice and creating community and to me, that's part of our baptism covenants. I look at my baptism covenants as kind of a vertical line going upward. My relationship with God, commandment keeping, but then keeping, but then a line going horizontal, which is my relationship with women and men in my life, and my responsibility to lift their burdens. And you're doing that. I don't. How do you feel about that quote? Do you have you ever heard that quote? Do you like that quote? I haven't, and thank you for reading it. I thought it was really beautiful, and and. And I think it does speak to um, what I try to do. I convince myself sometimes that, you know, if I can share what I'm experiencing and if I can lighten the load of others, then it makes it more, I don't know, worth it or there's more appeal in the dissent. Um, I also don't want to understate the the support that can come uh, by working with trained and licensed professionals. Um, I have done a lot of that. And um, I think that's something I might say for anyone listening who knows that they have trauma that they need to work through but doesn't know where to start. Um, Find a therapist who specializes in trauma. A lot of therapists don't. And so if you go and see someone who doesn't have the training and the tools, uh, things like EMDR or EFT, um, you can kind of uh, have an experience that's very dissatisfying but there are lots of therapists who have this specialization. So look for somebody um, with a specialization that matches what you're dealing with. And you don't have to do it alone. You can start with somebody that can walk you through, you know, what you need to heal. Talk about something that I just picked up, um, calling people survivors versus victims. Share with us um, a little education on that. 
Uh, I do tend to use the word survivor um, rather than victim. And, and part of that is because victim can feel like a very charged word. Victim is a word that feels very sad. Um, and it feels very powerless, right? Um, which oftentimes is what's at the core of this kind of trauma. And I think it's a, a, a very communicative word, and sometimes I'll use it. But survivor feels um, like it has that connotation of a, a trajectory, right? Like it feels like it's a word that can take you somewhere. It can take you out of uh, maybe victimhood. And I think that's why uh, many uh, survivors of sexual trauma prefer that identifier over victim. I like that. And I think of the wounded healer, this quote I read, led out of the desert requires movement to your point and trajectory and f- going forward. And I love the way you frame the difference between survivor and victim in that context. It's very helpful. Um, talk a little bit about why church could it is could be and is triggering for you. Um, I I, and I don't believe the um, trauma originated at church or from a church leader, but I, I, it's probably helpful for our listeners to understand why the church experience could be triggering or is triggering at times for you. Yeah, I, I can definitely speak to my own experience about that. Um, and I know that there are a lot of variations. So I just keep in mind that this is my experience, I guess. Um, so my my abuse was perpetrated by um, a much older man. Um, And it happened at a very young age, uh, an age where I was just starting to, uh, you know, conceptualize the difference between boys and girls and starting to conceptualize a a God figure. Um, And at that time, my God figure was very much male and he was an older man you know, with, with gray hair, an older white man with gray hair, which incidentally fits, um, is the same description I'd use to describe my perpetrator. Uh, and so when all of this came back, um, I mean, I wouldn't say it was like a, a light switch. I've always felt some uneasiness at church, but when everything surfaced, suddenly that uneasiness was, um, the volume, uh, you know, moved from maybe like a, an undertone to a scream, just a constant scream, and I couldn't ignore it anymore. And so I would go to church and feel uh, like I was in danger. I remember uh, the first time I tried to go to church um, after I was really, I decided to own that this was what I was dealing with. Um, I was so anxious that I couldn't get any clothes on. And so I showed up in this black jumper with leggings and I hadn't washed my hair in probably six days because my anxiety was so bad. And I, I managed to drag my body to church and I, I couldn't go into the chapel. I, I physically could not move into the chapel. And so I sat down looking very emo and um, I sat down in my jumper and leggings on a sofa and I cried uh, the whole meeting. Wow. Yeah. And it was a Spanish ward, which I chose intentionally because I knew nobody could ask me any questions or like they could, but that I could play the language card. Um, And so I still tried to force myself to go after that. I took a couple weeks off and the next time I could make it into the chapel, but something about seeing men 
in suits, just seeing men at all actually sent me overboard again. Um, and so it's difficult to explain. It doesn't make a lot of sense. And the best way I know to understand it is that as a child, I was abused by uh, a man who had more power and more quote unquote authority than I did. He was a parent figure, right? Not my parent. And I'll say that he's also deceased now. So that gives me more liberty, I think, to talk about my experience than maybe somebody else um, might feel. And, and so when I'm in a situation where I feel like I don't have any power or control um, regarding what's going to happen, uh, that that animal part of my brain I was describing earlier just sends off all of the high alerts. Um, and I'll say that I also have had a fair amount of experiences with bishops um, at this point in my life where I have felt like I was not understood and I have felt dismissed and I have felt um, maybe even unprotected. Um, and in my case, this wasn't because these men were were bad people. I think very few people fit that description. But they had their own blind spots. And so all of that kind of informs my trauma. And I, I go to church and I feel like I'm not seen here. And if I'm not seen, I am not protected. <laughs> um, and it's not totally rational, but, you know, until I can until I can get down to whatever is there at the bottom of that and make peace with it, uh, church is not a place that is helping me to heal right now. <laughs> And that's very helpful. Um, talk about when I don't feel seen, I don't feel protected. If I heard that right, just explain that a little bit more. I'll try. It's something I I don't necessarily understand um, myself, but you know, I think as a child, uh, I mentioned I or you mentioned <laughs> that I'm the oldest of four, and. So when I was abused, my mom had two other little babies at home, and um, my parents were, you know, young and trying to get uh, to find financial stability. Um, and I don't think that my needs uh, were really always very visible to them, um, and and certainly not, you know, as I look back on my life after the rape, I know that there are things that would have shifted in my personality and things that would have, um, would have changed. And I know there were a lot of behaviors that I would have adapted at that, or I would have taken on at that time um, to kind of adapt to the trauma. And, you know, as I look back on my life, I just, (laughs) I do kind of have this complex of feeling like, man, I can't believe that happened. And nobody ever like saw me, you know, and not to say that, um, make any commentary on my parents, they're human beings and life is so tough. Um, but I I think generally within our culture, these topics are not understood at all. Um, and I, you know, and so I, I know that well enough because of my experiences with feminism and, and just having questions about what it means to be a woman. Sometimes I'll find myself in an LDS congregation and feel like I'm speaking a different language. And and so a lot of those experiences have kind of primed me to be in a place where I feel like, you know, I, I'm if I try to speak to what I'm really experiencing, I think I might talk to a wall. And rather than taking that risk, especially when my trauma is at this screaming volume, you know, I've realized, like, it's not my job to fix this. 
for everyone. And it's okay. I can be gracious if people can't understand. Um, but it really right now is the wisest thing that I can do for my healing moving forward is to find the community or create the community where I will be seen. Um, so yeah, there are a lot of wires crossed there. And a lot of it I think is um, organic to me and my experience, but I can also see how um, the eyes that I'm looking out at the world through um, some of what they're seeing in the culture and in the church, um, they're not just projections of my own trauma landscape, um, but there are real things that are that are going on that that make it difficult for me to feel like I'm going to be safe and heard and seen at church. It's really helpful. You're, it's really courageous what you're doing, just sharing your story and being so open, and you're very articulate. You're very good at communicating how you feel. It's one of your gifts. Um, I feel like I'm learning a lot about you and about this space because your ability to communicate it so well. Um, it's one of your gifts. Um, you know, I think five years ago I would have said, well, how could the church not be healthy for you? <laughs> yeah, I believe in the church. It's a restored church. I still believe that. But I recognize that um, our culture doesn't match our doctrine, or the institutional side of our church doesn't match our doctrine sometimes, where um, you should, you know, our doctrine is to have, is a heavenly father and a heavenly mother, equal co-creators. And, and so I recognize that's our doctrine. And sometimes at the, at the culture level, at the institutional level, women's voices aren't as valued, and it's a patriarchal church. <laughs> and... Um, and so I'm more sensitive to how women feel at church. And, and that isn't just you being a woman, but then being a you know, survivor of sexual abuse. And the way you're articulating that is being in an environment where men are in control and men have authority and men have voice. And how triggering that is to you, rightly so, because of your own trauma. And then your defense mechanisms kicking into place saying, I need to separate myself from this environment. And I don't look at that as a sign of weakness. I don't look at that as a sign that you don't love our church or love heavenly parents or want to rebel. I look at it as pretty logical. Um, a, um, pro, a, a feeling for you. So I think it's really encouraging, really courageous you went to the Spanish ward. And I love the way you said why you went to the Spanish ward. It's because no one asked you any questions. And I think that's really remarkable of just how your brain is working to say, I could maybe go there <laughs> if someone doesn't ask me any questions. And to me, that's a sign of strength, but recognizing boundaries that you need to create to keep yourself safe. Um, so it's, I just honor how you feel, and I'm grateful you'd share your story. And do you see yourself permanently separating yourself from the church and not being in our church, or do you see yourself going back to church? And if so, how would that work? Yeah, that's a great question. I live in an area where there are chapels, um, like in every direction, three or four blocks. And so for a while, I would just um, kind of incognito attend various wards and stay in the back where I wasn't seen. I just like take the sacrament secretly and then run out. Um, and then I tried to, you know, kind of use that same approach in a singles ward, like kind of wade in. And eventually it got to this point where I realized that I wasn't honoring my own experience. Like I was trying to I was 
of taking this very masculine approach to the to the issue. I was trying, always trying to like find a loophole. <laughs> Maybe masculine is not the right word. I'm now kind of diverting into my whole heavenly mother thing, but um, kind of the difference between yin and yang, right? So yang is all about um, goals and and check boxes and and getting where you need to be and like <laughs> consistency, right? And yin is this like soft, like honor where you are, like it's okay to feel what you need to feel energy, maybe you'd say. And I I realized that I never actually let myself just do what I wanted to do, which was to say, oh, this isn't working. Like I I kept trying to corral myself back in and I kept, you know, telling myself, like, if you just have enough faith or, or whatever. And I, I got to this point where I realized that's not fixing the problem. So maybe I should just, like, as radical as this sounded at the time, I thought, maybe I should just listen to myself and, and stop trying to, to make this work and just really descend into whatever it is that needs to be loved and spend my energy doing that instead of trying to fit in, you know, or, or trying to... Um, I don't know, do what I have been told I should do. Sovereignty, right? So that was when I, that was very recently that I made that decision to just let myself um, interact with the church in the way that I felt like I needed to. And part of that meant no strings attached. Because if there's a part of me that's still saying, but eventually you'll come back, right? Or like, you're going to figure this out before your temple recommend expires. Then I'm, I'm, there's, I'm not fully honoring what I, what I'm experiencing. Um, and in some ways it feels like the story of, um, Adam and Eve, you know, like, uh, these competing commandments in my case, they're not commandments so much as circumstances. You know, there's a part of my heart that feels very much at home at church, but there's a part of my heart that's saying I can't be there. And so I kind of had to take the, the bitter fruit and maybe like be expelled from the garden. You could say, if that metaphor translates for anyone listening, and just allow myself to go on this journey and to go and to move, you know, and to trust that somehow this all makes sense in God's eyes, even though to me it feels like a very scary paradox. I really need to rework the way that I am in relationship to the church. I need to heal and I need to come to a place where I am really converted to my own sovereignty, you know, where I can step into that space and feel like I can protect myself here. If there's something that's said or something that feels wrong, I don't have to internalize that. I can say, you know, that doesn't work for me, but this, here is what works for me. And um, I think... And I loved your analogy of kind of your threads have been torn, but you're going to have to read read weave them. And so you're and just, I love that analogy you kind of shared with me before you went live. Share that with our listeners. Yeah. So, um, I think one of the ways I've been learning to kind of interact with my own faith crisis or transition, either word works for me. It does feel very much like a crisis. Um, is thinking about a loom and a weaving. So, I know for me, um, if I had like like a garment on, maybe that had been finely woven of many threads, and you know, one day I woke up and realized that this garment is very heavy. It's causing me a lot of pain. My immediate instinct might be to get that thing off and to get it as far away from me as possible. 
Um, I might even want to rip it up, just rend it, get it off of me. Um, and actually that was my immediate instinct. Instead of allowing myself to do that, I danced around it for a year, right? Um, but what I'm learning is that, okay, so now I've torn the garment and it's ripped and it's on the floor. I, I don't have to leave it there and I don't have to throw it all away. Instead, I can do very careful, methodical, um, spiritual work and I can sit with it and I can look at the various threads that make up this tapestry and I can start to identify threads that are harmful, that are not true, um, that don't work for me. And I can very graciously say, hey, you know, thanks. Obviously, you were doing something for me at some point in my life, but you're not anymore. So I'm going to let you go. And then I can look at my, my garment, the tapestry of my garment. And I can identify threads that still mean something to me. They're still important that help me make sense of my life and that feel good and right. And I can decide to hang on to those. And then I can go back to my loom when I'm ready and only when I'm ready, right? Not rushing this process. And I can start to weave something new. And it might look uh, the way that it did before, but it's going to be a new addition. And I might have some new fibers that I've been given through my journey, you know, that I can now incorporate into this new garment. Uh, And that particular metaphor has been something that brings me a lot of peace, Um, especially that sovereign component, right? That I am the weaver. Like I get to decide and I can trust myself and I can trust my ability to receive revelation to the point that I can allow myself to identify what is good for me and, and what I believe and what the spirit has confirmed to me. And I can identify things that maybe I need to part ways with. I love that. And I, I really love that Amber. And I think it's, um, Back to this idea of a survivor and trajectory is all about the future and hope. And I think about, you know, I sometimes go back into why I say Bishop Mode. I've been released for a few years now. But I think if I, if you were in my ward and you had just shared, you know, why you're not attending and your story, I think I my reaction would be, Amber, I trust you. You seem close enough with heavenly our Heavenly Father and our Heavenly Mother, and you're walking a very unique road that I don't know anything about, and I feel your good spirit and your desire to do what's right and heal, and I recognize how you feel at church. I would, I think the word that comes to my mind is trust. And I'd say, Amber, I trust you. Thank you. And I think maybe that is our doctrine of mortality, is our Heavenly Parents have sent us here. And... And have made that veil sometimes pretty thick. Um, so we don't always know they're there and they're not always just right behind us pointing us the direction. And I think one of the things about mortality is they're trusting us. And uh, and so I that's what I'd say to you. And I'd say, I trust you. And I just, you know, stay close with our heavenly parents, um, what you're doing. Um, continue to see personal revelation. Um, and I wouldn't probably put any ultimatums on you or um, any shaming comments to make you feel like I'm worried that you're, I would just trust you. And I just have great confidence that you seem to be have lived a life. You're not perfect, but you seem to be 
making really thoughtful decisions. You have a level of spiritual maturity, as our listeners are hearing, that's pretty high. <laughs> um, and you've been refined in a really wonderful way in some ways because of the difficult things you've had to hit it on. So your spiritual maturity, your emotional maturity, even though you have pain in your life, is pretty high. And you're not, you know, sort of a, just sense a lot of maturity. And I think our listeners are hearing that. So that's the way I'd handle that. And um, I do then wonder if I, you know, meet you, if your older selves could come on the podcast right now, your 30, late 30s self, or your late 40s self, um, what they'd say right now to you and to our listeners. But I think, I think they talk about this tapestry you're weaving. And I think they talk about the beauty of it and the work you're doing right now that is going to be really rewarding to you. Um, and I think they'd say, Amber, what you're doing right now is wonderful work. And the tapestry you're reading, weaving for yourself is going to be sustainable um, for you, for your relationship with the church, for your role to help other people. And I think your older selves would just talk about the amount of healing and hope you're going to be giving like you're doing right now, but in a larger way. And so I think they talk about sovereignty and trajectory and help you see the things you're going to be able to accomplish. Um, one of the things you're doing, one of the things that um, I was introduced to you about is your ability to talk about queens from the scriptures. I have people close to me in my life that look for stories of women in the scriptures to give them vision and role model women in my life. And this is an expertise that you have. Um, and let's talk about Bathsheba um, as an example and maybe some others. So let's start with Bathsheba. Oh, well, before we do, uh, I'd just like to say thank you for your very kind words and what you were saying about my 40-year-old self. <laughs> I really love that image, and I'll carry that with me after well, our interview, so thank you. You bet. Um, yeah, as far as Bathsheba goes, I I feel like such a funny person sometimes listening to myself. You know, I'm like, I haven't been to church in a year, but let's talk about women in the scriptures. <laughs> oh, well. So uh, I think it would have been seven years ago. While I was at BYU, I, I first started encountering some questions about what it meant to be a woman and um, what it meant to be a woman in, in the context of the gospel. And I, I made a friend named Heather Farrell. She's a blogger and, and now a published author. And she writes specifically about women in the scriptures. And she taught me um, something that has still served me really well. Uh, essentially, she taught me that and I don't know that these would be her words, these are mine, but um, that oftentimes we see what we're trained to see. And so in the case of women in the scriptures, there's a very, um, there's a, a misconception with very deep roots that there aren't any women in the scriptures. And that's not true. Um, the Bible, 10% uh, of the named characters in the Bible are female, which I think we can acknowledge as uh Still too low, <laughs> but 10%, that's like 100 people. And 100 people, that's, that's a lot of stories, stories that we're not talking about. So I, I lead little workshops occasionally on women in the scriptures. And when I do, one of the first points that I like to draw to people's attention is that there are maybe five or more, five different layers through which we create meaning 
when it comes to scriptural texts. Um, Five ways that a story is preserved and presented. The first might be um, who told the story. So we know that the stories in the Bible, for example, were initially preserved through the oral tradition. So there was somebody who was telling them. Then there was somebody who wrote them down. There was somebody who translated um, these stories, you know, from Hebrew or Greek into English. And then there was somebody who um, codified the stories, which means they went through and they created the appendices in the Bible dictionary and they created footnotes and um, kind of cross-references. And then lastly, there was somebody who curated the story, meaning within our faith tradition, there's a board of people who go looking through these holy texts and they are praying and asking which of these stories are going to be most relevant to people sitting in seminary or a Sunday school class. Um, and I, and maybe this, I sound like I'm building to like a punchline, but we all understand that at each of those levels, there was a man who was kind of making the decisions. And um, it's funny. It's also a little sad. Um, but I think that the end result when it comes to female voices and female narratives are that oftentimes they're minimized. Um, even as we look at the Bible and we we understand, oh, wow, like 10% of the named characters are female. Most of the time, if I'm sitting down with someone that hasn't looked into these topics, we can maybe come up with a list of five together until I geek out, right? Um, but but there are like 100. Wow. Yeah. And so that's been a thread that I've found um, fairly recently that I've woven into my tapestry. Um, that just because that's been the tradition doesn't mean that that's the best thing, you know. And I've I've understood that, um, you know, just because men have been our religious experts and scholars and um, meaning makers doesn't mean that that's what God intended. So before we talk about Bathsheba, I wanted to share kind of something that I think illustrates what I'm talking about. Um. I would guess that most of you listening to this podcast are familiar with the adage, uh, who can find a virtuous woman for her price is far above rubies. It's something that comes up a lot in young women's and in relief society. And if you're like me, it may have rubbed you wrong a time or two. So in my studies, I was looking at that chapter. That's Proverbs 31. And it's actually something I had turned to a lot. I remember when I was first having questions about women in the scriptures, I would talk to male authority figures like bishops and try to express what I was feeling and uh, be very misunderstood. And oftentimes bishops would tell me like, well, turn to the scriptures. And I'd be like, I did that and it's not working. You know, I'd like go through the the Bible dictionary and look at the, the entry for woman and then go on this wild goose chase through the scriptures, like anytime there was a woman mentioned or like a mother or a wife. And I'd be like, this is not answering my questions. I've since realized that that's because that particular wild goose chase was put together by a man who wasn't asking the same questions I was asking. Interesting. So Proverbs 31 is the chapter that asks the question, who can find a virtuous woman for her price is far above rubies? And it's to my knowledge, the only treatment on womanhood in our canon. Um, there are something like 35 verses, I want to say, um, that all answer this question, who can find a virtuous woman? And initially it looks like a laundry list. Um, the author describes this woman sitting at her loom, like feeding the people dinner, um, making the clothing, like doing the cleaning. 
Uh, and oftentimes that's how it's taught, especially um, in previous generations. A virtuous woman is somebody, she's a housewife. She's a homemaker. So, so anyways, I was, I, I was learning to see these holy records through new eyes. I was learning to see the women that were there in these pages. And I turned to Proverbs 31 and started reading what was actually there as opposed to what I'd been taught to see. Um, and within our faith, we repeat these lessons so often that sometimes they can get so ingrained in our heads that we're not even... Like we can actually glaze over things, right? Because we're just seeing the script that we've been taught. So I opened to Proverbs 31 and I read the first verse. And this is what it says. The words of King Lemuel, the prophecy that his mother taught him. Wow. I've never heard that. Yeah. It's the verse that's introducing what follows in the chapter. And at least according to my interpretation, what it's saying is Proverbs 31 was authored by a woman. And not just any woman, she was a queen, the mother of King Lemuel. And maybe author isn't even the best word for the contents of this chapter, because the contents of the chapter are described as a prophecy. So apparently this queen mother had a prophetic capacity that merited her words, um, making it all the way into the Bible, even after all five of these levels of um, male censorship, you could say. Um, And so suddenly, almost on a dime, um, this passage that used to cause me so much consternation shifted. And I realized this isn't a man dictating to a woman what makes a righteous woman. This is a woman self-defining, using the gift of prophecy, her own role. Uh, And it was pretty crazy because this is a chapter that's caused me a lot of (laughs) stress um, and a lot of negative feelings. And all of that was uh, almost evaporated when I realized that, oh my gosh, like a woman authored a chapter of scripture. And it's not just any old chapter, it's the chapter about what it means to be a woman. And I started seeing things that I hadn't seen before and felt, I felt then and I feel now that this is what we're missing. You know, not just in regards to seeing Proverbs 31 for what it is, but what would it be like if we had a culture and, and a system in place where women could be their own authority? Women working in tandem with God, right? Like queens prophesying about themselves. That's what I'm looking for. And that's what I'm trying to find within myself. But it was very liberating to see that <laughs> there, there was a type for that in the Bible. I had been there this whole time. That's really cool. I'm going to read Proverbs 31 with a whole new set of eyes and I encourage our listeners to do the same. Talk about um, Bathsheba. Yeah. So Bathsheba is a, a character that I feel like I've become very close to um, over the last year and a half. Uh, my training was at BYU in theater, and I actually um, focused on oral storytelling. And so oftentimes, spirituality um, takes up very strong roots um, within the, the, the practice of storytelling in my life. Um, and so at some point pretty early on um, in my discovery of my own childhood trauma, I was led to the story of Bathsheba in the Bible. And... I had heard that story numerous times growing up, 
um, kind of a la uh, that that song that's so popular, Hallelujah. I know it's covered by Rufus Wainwright. Um, you know that David saw her bathing on the roof, and her beauty and the moonlight overthrew him. Um, I'd only ever heard the word adultery used to describe her relationship to David, and it seemed like she was very much culpable and at fault. I guess she'd been out on the roof seducing this man. Um, And, you know, that was all I'd ever heard. Now, I I say that uh, a bit tongue-in-cheek, because while that had been all I'd ever heard, it always felt off. It just didn't feel good to me when I would hear that story in Sunday school or in seminary. Um, and I, I realize now that it was a little triggering, um, and that's part of the reason that it didn't feel good, but I, I think that there was more to it. So here I am now in my late 20s. This memory has resurfaced, and I feel very impressed to revisit the story of Bathsheba, and I go into the story with these new eyes, and I open the chapters, I think they're in Samuel, um, that, that give us the story of Bathsheba, and I start seeing things immediately that... Uh, tell a very different story. Um, Firstly, the verse that kind of lays the context for the story, it tells us that David was upon his roof, and from his roof, he saw this woman bathing. The story doesn't actually give us any indication at all of where Bathsheba was. Uh, David lived in a palace, a palace that was on the hill. Um, And According to my research, it's only been in the last, somewhere in the last thousand years that our understanding has shifted and we've placed Bathsheba on the roof. There's um, an ancient historian by the name of Josephus. Um, I think he lived maybe right between when we think David's stories would have played out and when Christ was born. And he wrote this extensive commentary on the Old Testament. And so a lot of theologians and Bible scholars will use his work as a point of reference. And he wrote that Bathsheba was in her own home bathing. Does that tell us where Bathsheba was bathing? No. Will we ever know? Probably not. Uh, But what it does tell us is that somewhere um, since Josephus wrote that story down and today, our understanding has shifted. Um, And so I started looking deeper into the story Uh, when Bathsheba arrives at the home and conceivably within the bedroom of King David, it says that he laid with her because she was purified from her uncleanness, which tells us uh, that the bath that she was taking, it wasn't just any old bath. She wasn't relaxing in some bath salts because her husband was gone to war. Um, Women Uh, under the law of Moses, were considered unclean when they were menstruating. And there was a very specific ritual baptism that they performed at the end of their periods to demarcate the transition from unclean to clean again. Um, And I'll say that unclean and clean aren't really great uh, reflections of at least what I think that law intended. Um, It was more like Anciently, people believed that when a woman was on her period, she was in a state of tuma, which means that she can't create life. Um, there's death happening in her body. But when she, um, you know, when her uterus like heals itself and she leaves her menstruation, she's re-entering a, a state of fertility and an ability to create life. Um, but anyways, she, um, 
the the Bible very clearly illustrates for us that this bath that she was taking um, was this ritual bath, which is still practiced by Orthodox Jews today. Um, it's a bath that's taken uh, by immersion in a pool of water called the mikvah. Um, I don't know if Bathsheba took her bath in an immersive pool or not. Um, but again, that's another really important data point that starts to shift the story. We also understand from reading the passage that her husband Uriah was away at war. When David comes out on his roof, according to the narrative, he asks one of his guards who the woman is, and they tell him that it's Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. Uriah was previously identified in the chapter as one of David's 37 strong men, meaning that he would have been someone who was known to the king. So when the king comes out onto his roof and he sees this woman taking a ritual bath, and he asks who she is, and he's told that this is Uriah's wife, he knows that Uriah is away at war. And so he knows that he can summon Bathsheba to his house without there being any immediate consequences. This is a story that plays out in the Old Testament numerous times. Sarah was taken from Abraham by the Pharaoh and again by a king named Abimelech. Um, Abimelech, I think is how that's pronounced. Um, Isaac and Rebekah, it happens again. Um, this king named Abimelech uh, comes to Isaac. It's so funny because you might remember that Abraham lies and he says that Sarah is his sister because he wants to protect himself and because apparently God told him that he should you know, do that. And so Sarah actually gets taken. But a generation later, um, a king by the same man, name, Abimelech, comes to Isaac and um, this king's a little smarter. And so he's like, is this your wife? And Isaac's like, uh, it's my sister. And Abimelech says, are you sure about that? And Isaac says, okay, no, it's my wife. And Abimelech says, well, why did you lie to me? And Isaac confesses that he was worried he was going to get killed so that this king could take his wife. And, and this new, younger Abimelech, it's unclear, um, decides you know, to, to not go through with it and to, to leave this little family alone. And it happens again. The story of Dina, um, who was taken by uh, a prince of Shechem. So there, there's a real... Um, a basis for what these power structures looked like, um, what kings uh, thought that they were entitled to. And my point is that actually nothing about the story presents Bathsheba as an adulteress. Nothing about it presents her as being at fault in any way. And in fact, after we get the story of her conceiving her first baby by King David, who was then, she miscarried that baby. And um, we know that David ultimately kind of arranged for Uriah's death. After we hear that story, there's a chapter um, where Nathan, who is the prophet, comes to David. And this is how he catches David in his guilt. He spins a, a little story, a metaphor. And he says, David, there was a man in the kingdom who was very poor and only had one little ewe lamb that he loved very much. And then there was a rich man in the kingdom who had a whole flock. And the rich man stole the poor man's little ewe lamb. And, and murdered it and fed it to his friends. And David, you know, being very <laughs> self-righteous, I suppose, says, like, where is that wealthy man? He needs to be punished. And um, very dramatically, I imagine, Nathan the prophet says, you are that man. Um, and, and so it's, it's pretty apparent within the parable that David is represented by the wealthy man and that Uriah is represented by the poor man. But... Who, is rep who represents Bathsheba? The little female lamb. 
that's not a story about consent. That's not a story about adultery. That's a story about innocence, about innocence being taken and being used and being harmed. I'll also mention that to my knowledge, there's only one other human being in scripture that's compared to a lamb, and that's Jesus Christ. So as I started to make these discoveries, I really felt like I had found a friend and a mentor, like a woman who understood what it was like to be victimized and to be hurt. A fellow wounded healer. <laughs> mm-hmm. But then I discovered that the story continues, and this is what really shocked me. Um, oftentimes in scripture, when we're hearing about women, um, we just get a little data point. We see them like in conjunction with a man's story. So we're just seeing them at a moment in their, in their lives rather than kind of a longitudinal uh, narrative. And like I said, growing up, all I ever heard about Bathsheba was that she was on a roof being seductive and, uh, you know, and then her husband died in the end. But it turns out that she actually appears again later on. So David has a very large harem and many, many children. And when he's dying on his deathbed, um, he's got a variety of sons who are all warring with each other for the throne. And it's very violent, um, lots of uh, death happening. And apparently at some point, um, David had promised Bathsheba that her son would be king, uh, which is a little bit unusual because Bathsheba was definitely not the first wife. She wouldn't have even been close to the top of the list. Um, and so Bathsheba had had raised Solomon. Um, I, I believe she'd raised him, according to some apocryphal texts, she'd raised him with this knowledge intact and that she was a very righteous woman. And so as this kingdom is in tumult and as David is laying, you know, nearing death on his deathbed, Nathan the prophet goes to Bathsheba and essentially communicates that he knows she has a lot of influence and that he needs her to go into that chamber and advocate for Solomon to be king. Because Nathan feels that Solomon is the only son of David's who has even a fighting chance at ruling righteously. And so Bathsheba does. She goes into the chamber of David and she kind of calls him to repentance. She reminds him of the promise that he'd made her and reminds him that Solomon is supposed to be king. And David concedes and and David testifies that like God has really redeemed his soul of all distress. And within this context, it appears that that has something to do with his relationship with Bathsheba. And then he dies and Solomon is crowned. And when Solomon is crowned, Bathsheba again approaches this new king from a position of advocacy, and he has a chair, a little chair erected on the right side of his throne that's specifically for his mother to sit on, for her to sit there and to counsel with him. I didn't know that. That's cool. Yeah. And so this story shows us that even though Bathsheba had been victimized and treated poorly and obviously didn't have a lot of choices in that era regarding like how she was going to move forward in her life, she obviously reached some kind of healing and some kind of forgiveness for David and for others, like the whole system, right, that that gave her such a narrow opportunity in life. She must have reached those those that place of empowerment and sovereignty, I think, for Nathan to see her as someone with influence, you know, and for David to receive her and to take her advice, and then ultimately for Solomon to put that chair on the right side of his throne. 
Um, and since I've learned all of those things, I've learned that anciently there was actually a title for this queen mother. The word in Hebrew is Gabira. Um, and you see it, it pop up quite a lot, actually. Bathsheba was a Gabira. Um, this woman in Proverbs 31, this queen mother who prophesies, she was a Gabira. Um, there's a woman in the New Testament called the Candace. We actually just covered this story in uh, in the Come Follow Me uh, material, the story about the the eunuch from Ethiopia who served under the Candace. She was a queen mother. Um, and, and so uh, seeing this story through this new lens was electrifying for me and really started to solidify some of the things that I believed in my heart about God, even if they weren't reflected to me in the pews, you know, at church. I started seeing this, like, woman who rose from the ashes and and this woman who— like through her choices, she brought liberty to those in her kingdom and she created a new opportunity for, for new life. And, you know, while Solomon might have eventually taken a path much like his father's, he did build the temple. He was a, you know, there was a period of great righteousness and great prosperity. And looking at the story through this lens, it looks like Bathsheba had a lot to do with that. Pretty exciting. I just... Loved hearing about Bathsheba. I remember that Sunday school lesson in our own ward and um, our teacher trying to kind of teach the same things you were. And she did a good job, but she got some pushback. I remember that. And um, I love what you've taught about Bathsheba. And I love that um, what you're doing, um, not only for the women of the church, but the men of the church. I want my sons and my grandsons to have role model women like you in their lives to help them become the men they need to become. So I think part of your mission is to bring voices of women with the work you're doing. And maybe in closing, you can talk about this book um, that I became aware of through a Kickstarter program. I think it's called Queens. Woman Crowned is the title. Oh, I've got that wrong then. Woman Crowned. You could maybe in closing talk about that book. But I just think what you're doing is for women, but it's for men too. Because I I just, I need to become the man God wants me to be by having women teach me about um, women and men so I can grow as a man. So I think your role is a lot broader than just giving voice to women's voices so that women better understand and feel like there's role models like you in their lives. But I think your role is also to help men and the things that we can learn about the the gospel of Jesus Christ from what you're—I didn't know much of this story. I didn't know about Proverbs 31 and that context, and that's very helpful for me as a father and as a man. Um. And I keep reminding myself you're in your late 20s because you have, you have um, insights that are far beyond your years and a spiritual depth far behind your years, beyond your years. And that's really a credit to you. But, yeah, we're kind of coming to the end. So it just it, whatever you'd like to talk about, just in conclusion, if you want to talk about this book or if you want to talk about any other subject, just what you'd like to talk about, Amber, to kind of wrap up. Okay. Well, thank you again. Um your feedback is so compassionate and loving, and I really appreciate those moments where you interject. I know I can get a little carried away with Bathsheba, so my apologies. Keep getting carried away. <laughs> Don't go for it. <laughs> um, well, in conclusion, I guess I'll mention that I, 
something that I'm recently having my eyes open to is um, we talked about that desert earlier that I've been in. And that's very, very telling, um, very communicative of what I've experienced. And the the vista is starting to shift for me. I'm I'm starting to see new life um, that I I'd never seen before, and I'm I'm starting to see Heavenly Mother, um, and and where she is, and and how she loves, and um, I really think that that's been necessary for me because if I'm going to truly become converted to who I was designed to be, then I need that that mentorship and that, um, and that companionship, um, from my mother. I'm, I'm never going to be complete or whole if, um, I only have a father. I think that we all have, um, traces of the masculine and the feminine within us and that each of us is a unique manifestation of these two, like, eternal polar powers, I guess you could say. And I don't pretend to know how they manifest in eternity, but I do know that I have been incomplete and I have been um, lacking and and suffering in some ways, um, only having this masculine script to um, adhere to. And that there's been something immensely healing about finding my feminine self, my my yin to the yang. Um, and so for me, when I, when I speak about Heavenly Mother, that's, that's kind of what I'm talking about. So I've, I've discovered in my studies of women in the scriptures that many of them act as types and shadows. They're archetypes for the Divine Mother. And I can't access them if I'm reading them through uh, the lens of my heritage, especially when that heritage can be so closely woven with ideas that are not of God, you know, like victim blaming, maybe you'd say, in the case of Bathsheba's story or rape culture. Um, and so when I, like in Bathsheba's case, I that image of a queen mother sitting on the right hand of her son, her the king, sitting and counseling with him and advocating for him, like that's such an immediate connection to Heavenly Mother. And, and seeing her in that powerful light, seeing her, um, you know, as someone who you know, whether or not Heavenly Mother has risen from the ashes, I definitely think that she can mentor women who need to. Um, and and thinking about her on that throne um, next to her son is something that my heart has really latched onto. And there are myriad um, images and connections uh, like that one in these stories. We just haven't been looking for them. Um, but but they're there. There's, I mean... The, the world is full of um, clues that can lead us to this kind of wholeness, this kind of completion. Um, so that's the work that I'm trying to do with Woman Crowned. I'm trying to retell these stories in a new way that starts to, to imagine some of those connections. Um, and that's in a book. Yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's part prose and part photography. Um, we're using both mediums to kind of imagine these women, these queens in the scriptures, and I'll be writing from a pretty personal standpoint. So there's a lot of research that goes into it, but I'm hoping that my voice will also come through. Yeah. And is this a year away, five years away? 
We're hoping to have it produced uh, in time for Mother's Day next year. That's great. Yeah. We'll see. <laughs> Trying not to you know, push myself too much. But. And tell our listeners again the title. And I assume it could, if it's when it's out, it, it would be on Amazon. But tell our listeners if they're listening to Closer to May and wondering if it's out, where the name again and where they'd find it. Yeah, it'll be Woman Crowned, Woman Comma Crowned. Um, my name's Amber Richardson, so you can search for me. I do think we'll have it on Amazon. It'll, I'm self-publishing the book, so uh, everything's a little rickety. <laughs> it's my first time doing this, but hopefully you'll be able to find it. If not, I'm on Instagram. My handle is richardson.amb, and you can message me. And, and Do you have a website at all that talks about your work with this book that you could go to to track progress, or is the best way just to I don't maybe follow yet. you on Instagram? Instagram is probably the best. Do you give option. updates on your book and other things you're working on. So, I do. will you give yeah. your Instagram address once more? Yeah, my handle on Instagram is Richardson R I C H A R D S O N dot A M B. That's it. <laughs> and talk about this conference in late September that you're putting on or involved with, just for our listeners if they want to learn connect. Yeah. With this conference. So. If that story about Bathsheba or any of my comments about weaving was of interest to you, I'm working with an organization called Womb to stage a retreat in September. It'll be the weekend of September 27th and 28th. We're going to be at a lodge um, that's right on the Black's Fork River. It's about two hours outside of Salt Lake City. Um, The retreat is for anyone who identifies as a woman, I'll say. And we're going to be having some workshops covering the story of Bathsheba. We're going to um, be talking about, you know, how to find sovereignty in your journey and how to how to kind of weave faith after faith has maybe been um, challenged or ripped or altered. Um, yeah, and we find that uh, having these conversations in a retreat space is a really nice way to get people away from the busyness of their lives and, and the stress. And it's a really connecting um, time. And yeah, so if any of this is of interest to you, you're invited. Would they reach out to you on Instagram for how to sign up and stuff like that? Yeah, they could find find me on my page uh, or the organization's name is Womb. And, and that's at Womb, W-O-M-B underscore sisters. They have a link for registration there as well. Good. Any final thoughts you'd like to share with our listeners, Amber? I think I would just say that for reasons I don't fully understand, I have a lot of hope inside about the future. Um, Not only for the church, um, although I... I do have a lot of hope for the church because there are so many people who are seeking compassion and and conversation. I don't think I'm in control of what happens. I know I'm not. (laughs) Um, But I do think that God has has us in mind and the way that God has all of us in mind the world over, especially those who are seeking um, him and her and I think that there is a trajectory in place for all of us that is going to be okay, if not eventually happy. And 
that's something that I have to remind myself of, especially on a personal level in moments when I'm feeling triggered. <laughs> and that happens a lot. Um, but that's, it's one of my core beliefs that everything is going to be okay. And I hope as you've listened, you know, that wherever you are, that you've been able to find some access point to what I've shared and, and that this concept that everything's going to be okay, that maybe there's a little space in you that you can um, open up to that idea too. So just that. Thank you, Amber Richardson, for being on our podcast. Thank you, Jacqueline Sokol. Am I saying her name right? Jacqueline Sokol. Jacqueline Sokol for um, hook, for introducing me to Amber so we could have her on the podcast. You're awesome, Amber. Thank you. And you are, um, I think you know how I, I, you know, I think our listeners just join with me in thanking you for being you and your voice and your unique mission and being able to walk out of a very difficult desert um, and now your ability to bring other people with you in their respective deserts. You're a healer and you're someone with hope and and thank you for being on the podcast. And I just give you my blessing as a fellow human um, of support for what you're doing and the divine mission that you have that's unique. It's not in the handbook. It doesn't fit into a nice, tidy calling, but what you're doing um, to heal people in our church and in society, and you're really young, and what you're doing already is really remarkable. So that's where I think of your older selves and your this extended mission of yours to um, and the beautiful life you have ahead of you and um, heavenly parents that love you and are really proud of you for what you're doing. And so thank you for being on another episode and thanks our listeners for joining us. And Tom Garbett, our producer, I rarely give a shout out. He really exists. He's out there and knows how to make these podcasts go from the Dropbox backup folder to wherever you're listening. Tom is a um, dear friend and Thanks, Tom, for your efforts.